This is the Medici Podcast, Season 1, Episode 11, Sin and Profit. I was late with this episode right after being sick I ran into a number of small catastrophes but we should be back on schedule and I will get the special episode on Dante up within a week or two so with that let's get started so I decided to take a brief break from telling the story of Giovanni de Bici's life to give a little context to exactly how the Medici made their money. Let's talk capitalism, or proto-capitalism, or whatever you want to call it. I'll fess up, I'm a rare historian who hates talking about isms. If you've ever been dragged into a debate about the meaning of socialism, or nationalism, or postmodernism, you might know what I mean. Uh, Don't get me wrong, isms do refer to things that are real and tangible, but at the same time, all isms are just made up for our convenience. And yet people, whether they're people itching for a fight on Twitter, or they're an academic with an essay or a book to shop around, love to argue about definitions and what is or isn't that ism or the exact origins of the ism. I don't want to shame my chosen profession, but I do think professional historians tend to get too hung up on isms. And capitalism is probably the, I don't know, the holy grail of isms. Because when you talk about capitalism, you not only have to deal with history, but with Marxist philosophy. On one side, you have historians like Martha C. Howe, who argue you can't even talk about capitalism unless you're writing about a time and a place that has an industrialized economy and a government that practices free trade. On the other side, you have Maurice Dobbs' argument that capitalism began within medieval European feudalism. Or you have the fact that some scholars are perfectly comfortable describing pastimes in non-European societies like Edo Japan as capitalist. I don't really mean to place my bets on any of these arguments. As my poor beleaguered PhD advisor could tell you, I really just don't like debates over terms. I will at least say I don't believe in following too strict a definition of any ism, even capitalism. Even in the records of ancient Rome, a society where trade was considered a fairly dishonorable tradition, you can still find what we would call the entrepreneur. For example, there's Sergius Orata from the Roman Empire in the first century BCE, who became extremely rich by inventing and commercializing a method for breeding and farming oysters. And possibly he also developed the technology for heating baths and bathhouse floors. It's hard to make the case that Rome was a 
capitalist society, especially in terms of how dependent its economy was on slavery and how its culture negatively viewed commerce. But at the same time, it isn't too difficult to find maybe traces of capitalism. But honestly, I think it's too easy to get hung up on trying to find where the history of capitalism begins and the history of pre-capitalism or proto-capitalism or whatever ends. The problem is that capitalism and most, if not all, isms are always in flux and always have different definitions. Even in our own recent history, the managerial industrial capitalism that arguably hit its peak by the 1950s and 1960s is considerably different from the shareholder-dominated service economy capitalism we live under, or, as I'd put it, have to endure. How hard a line should be drawn between these? Are they at least different kinds of capitalism? Or are we experiencing a transition into a whole newism? These are the types of questions that I just can't bring myself to care that much about, to be honest. So to get back on target, was Florence in the late medieval and Renaissance eras a capitalist society? I don't know. And frankly, I don't think it's an important question. At least not as important as discussing how the economy of that time and place actually worked. I hope I'm not offending anybody, but I can imagine some economic historian of Renaissance Italy who wrote a book about the subject of the development of capitalism shaking their fists at my voice right now. In any case, at the very, very least, I definitely think you can draw a straight line from the economy of Renaissance Florence to modern capitalism. After all, if you do want to debate that capitalism started anywhere, Northern Italy in the late Middle Ages is as good a time and place as any. By the 14th century, it was no longer the most populated and urbanized region in Western and Central Europe. That honor was stolen by the Netherlands. However, it was still the region with the biggest commercial and industrial economy. The fact that international finance and trade permeated the economy caused it to also be the site for several innovations. Northern Italy became the first place in Europe that offered things like the bank deposit, the bill of exchange, the check, and the letter of credit. Double-entry accounting, which had existed in the Roman Empire and was developed independently in medieval Korea, also made a comeback. However, these things had to coexist with something that's foreign to us, the idea that usury, or making loans with interest, is a sin. Nowadays, people, depending on their politics, will gladly say that the Bible condemns this or that, but very few people will talk about how clearly Judaism condemned usury. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. Exodus twenty-two twenty-five. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger, so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God, so that they may continue to live among you. Leviticus 25, 35, 36. 
And those are just two examples. Arguably, Jesus in the New Testament was a little more ambiguous, but there are a couple of quotations from the Gospels that suggest Jesus shared the traditional religious attitude toward usury. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Luke 6.35 From the beginning of Christianity's history, usury was strongly discouraged and outright forbidden for members of the clergy. As banking became more common, especially in Italy by the 12th century, the church actually doubled down on its regulations. The Third Council of the Lateran, which was held in 1179, declared that notorious usurers would not receive the sacraments or Christian burial, and they defined usury broadly as an attempt by the lender to gain any profit beyond the principle of the loan. And the objection wasn't just because of what the scriptures said. Theologians argued usury was essentially the theft of the fruits of the borrower's own labor. One popular argument was even that usury was the theft of time itself, which should belong to God alone. Even though he was a native of Florence himself, Dante put usurers in the seventh circle of hell in a burning desert along with sodomites and blasphemers. Interestingly, none of the usurers are Jewish, despite medieval stereotypes, but are all members of great Florentine families. More than just a sin, there were also laws against usury. But there were plenty of loopholes to get around both divine and earthly law. The most notorious of these was having Jewish people work as lenders and bankers, since the Torah did allow Jews to loan money to non-Jews. Naturally, this fueled stereotypes of Jews as greedy, even though in many places banking was one of the very few good occupations open to them. Outside that, sometimes interest could be charged in a contract as a payment to offset risk or to compensate the lender for their work in drawing up the contract. The best and most lucrative loophole, though, was made possible through the exchange rate. In his book, Medici Money, Banking, Metaphysics, and Art in 15th Century Florence, author Tim Parks describes a scenario where a merchant from England comes to a banker in Venice. The banker will give him florins, and in exchange, the English merchant will sign a bill of exchange that the banker can use to claim pound sterling from London. Once the exchange is fully made, the bank profits from the difference in the exchange rate. To quote Parks, Basically, the trick is that the currency quoted as a unit is always worth a small percentage more in the country of issue. As far as Florence and Northern Europe are concerned, the difference in the two exchange rates, which determines the banker's profit, is greatest in early spring. Manuals are written to help merchants and bankers get their minds around the system. Generally, theologians accepted this particular loophole, because at least there is an element of risk for the lender. However, theologians and lawmakers did find it dicey. For example, one English law colorfully describes bills of exchange as damnable bargains grounded in usury. Parks continues, Usury was abominable, but people needed loans and bankers a return for giving them. 
The complex system of differing exchange rates, possible only because of the time it took to travel from one financial center to another, provided an ambiguous territory that kept trade moving, and many in a constant state of anxiety as to the destination of their eternal souls. As we'll see with Giovanni de Bici himself, bankers did take these ideas seriously and feared for their own souls. As you don't need to be a historian to guess so, anti-usury laws hit pawnbrokers and small-time moneylenders much harder than the international bankers, who had the Pope and monarchs for clients, and of course, could easily gain all their profits from the exchange rates. As for working in finance and commerce generally, like I noted at the beginning of the episode, there was something of a stigma against that kind of work in much of Europe. If you became rich through commerce and finance and was granted or even bought a noble title, you were expected to liquidate all your businesses and only invest in land. In France, it was even illegal to be a noble and operate most types of businesses. The stigma wasn't just enforced by aristocratic snobbery and the occasional law, but was backed by rich commoners themselves, who didn't want their businesses to have to compete with nobles, who usually enjoyed privileges like exemptions from most taxes. The distinction between nobles and commoners were also enforced in superficial ways. All across Europe, sumptuary laws restricted what non-nobles could wear, The rationale was not just to preserve class hierarchies. The idea, rooted in both the Greek and Roman philosophical tradition and in Christianity, was that luxury was morally corrupting, and letting just anyone show off their riches was harmful to the morality of the population at large. Even though Florence had a government that empowered trade guilds and restricted the political rights of its own nobility, it too had its own sumptuary laws. These included a law mandating that only nobles could wear clothes more than one color, and a ban on commoners having meals with more than one course. All women who wore any gold, silver, pearls, precious stones, bells, uh, really bells, ribbons of gold or silver, or cloth of silk had to pay a special tax of 50 florins a year. Women's clothes also could not have buttons, except between the wrist and the elbow. In fact, conventional wisdom was that commerce itself, not just luxury, was a source of moral corruption. As the great theologian Thomas Aquinas put it, greed is awakened in the hearts of citizens through the pursuit of trade. Even so, to go back to the opening, you could argue that Florence was capitalist, and not just because of its economy. The rich dynasties of Florence tended to buck the trend of Europe's wealthy, trading in their lucrative business for a noble title and or land. Instead, they tended to do both, buying up land and real estate, while also still investing in trade. It's probably too much to say that Florence was completely out of sync with the rest of Europe, but it is interesting that, as late as 1527, an ambassador from Venice was shocked to see some of the elites of the city working in their own shops, doing the most menial chores. Basically, the expectation that once your family achieved a certain degree of wealth and prestige, you should give up commercial activities wasn't nearly as strong in Florence as it was elsewhere. So the bottom line is that, for the purposes of our story, the question of whether or not Florence can be described as capitalist is not that important. But what is important is the fact that Florence at this time 
was one of the few places in Europe where a family of bankers could rise to the very top of the hierarchy. Be sure to check out MediciPodcast.com for maps, bibliographies, and more. There, you'll also find ways to support me and the podcast through Patreon or with one-time payments. Remember, I'm yet another underemployed and underpaid millennial, so it counts as charity. Also, it helps me keep the podcast going through buying books for research and upgrading my equipment. Thanks for listening, and buona notte.